All right. Thank you, Nate and Alice. Always a privilege to have them lead us in worship, is it not? Uh, so grateful for them. I um, want to move for a moment, at least, from the madness of everything that's been going on to a different kind of madness that starts in a few weeks and can tend to dominate college basketball sports at the end of March. We have a way of doing things that historically that we rate and rank teams based on their skill, based on their uh, schedules, based on their talent, based on their records. And this effort to find who are the number one teams in the different regions of the country and put a tournament together to find out which is the best, right? Once in a while I have crazy ideas, parallels, and I wonder, what if we did that with the Bible? Like, like what are the best books of the Bible? If we were to pit them against each other, put them in tournaments, you know, what would come, what would come out as the best, most influential, most impacting books of the Bible? Well, what if we had just, just looked at the New Testament, all right, and we tried to come up with the top five, the top five most influential, most impacting, best New Testament books? I think it's possible that we could get some broad consensus on three. You could disagree, but this is my hunch, that, that the, the Gospel of John would hands down be one of them. It so beautifully presents Jesus um, presenting the grace and truth of God, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the clarity of the gospel of belief. That's just gotta be a top five, right? And we think of the book of Romans, the greatest theological treaties that we have in the New Testament, clarifying justification, so many other things related to the gospel of salvation. Uh, Romans has to be a top five book. And then many of us, would lean towards Ephesians, the, the mature reflections, the life in the spirit, um, just the, the, perhaps the highest, most beautiful theology in the New Testament. And so now we've got all of the other books of the New Testament competing for these final two slots. And I want to make a case that the underdog, 2 Corinthians, <laughs> deserves one of those two slots, all right? Now, 2 Corinthians is often overlooked, and there's good reasons that it's overlooked. One is, it tends to always follow 1 Corinthians. So, if you're a pastor, and you're taking on the book of 1 Corinthians, you're hoping that by the end of your two-year or longer series, that you still have a job. Because there are so many contentious uh, issues, so many issues that have literally split churches, divided denominations, started new denominations that are within the book of 1 Corinthians of, of the disputed issues. Um, so how do we deal with carnality? How do we deal with sexuality, with singleness, with marriage, with perversion? How do we deal with, I've already used the term, but how do we deal with disputed things, disputations? Um, how do we deal with weaker brothers? And then we've got the arena of spiritual gifts and tongues and prophecy and healings. And then we've got understanding the resurrection and the culmination of all things. 
I'm telling you, denominations line up by how they interpret the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you get to the end of 1 Corinthians as a pastor, the last thing you're going to do after spending time with this most contentious of churches is sign up for going right into 2 Corinthians. You know, you're going to go to like Proverbs, right? It's <laughs> just going to go somewhere completely different. And so I have been a part of churches for over 50 years, and I have never until this month been a part of a church that has taught through 2 Corinthians in the services. I have taught it in a Sunday school class. I've guided a small group through it. I love the book, but I recognize it's overlooked. There's another reason why it's overlooked, and that's because it has kind of a slow start. It's a bit stodgy out of the gate. And for those who want immediate... um, you know, immediate gratification, it's a book that forces you to work a little bit, a little bit harder. It's a little bit more advanced in that sense. We have to be willing to put in the time like we would for anything precious. Think of a, a spousal relationship. Um, think of a piece of art. Think of haagen ice cream. It's just, it's worth the effort to put in a little bit more more time and, and work there. And that's what we find here in 2 Corinthians. I want to give you just, just, just hints of things that are upcoming uh, to whet your appetite before we get into today's more difficult uh, uh, passage. But here's what's coming up in the next few chapters. Phrases like, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. We are competent to be ministers of the new covenant. There is, at the end of chapter 3, I think the best singular verse that we have in our Bibles of how to be conformed into the image of Christ. Spoiler alert. Um, We have this beautiful picture of the light of the gospel in the face of Christ. Uh, We find ourselves to be treasures in jars of clay. We have a preview of our heavenly dwelling that God is preparing for us. We have a calling to be ministers of reconciliation and for believers to be those who actually begin to experience the first fruits of new creation. Those are themes that are coming up just in the next few chapters of this remarkable book. So last week, as Robert was talking, it was kind of part one of a passage that finishes this week. And I just want to announce up front, it's a little bit hard to get our fingers on some things. Some passages are immediately accessible, and this is one of those others that we have to search it out. We have incomplete information. We want more, and we don't get the details that we wish we could get. And so we try to look behind the scenes and see what is God showing us here? What does God want us to see? And I think it's going to be worth the effort today. Um, Paul's overarching desire is that people will see the character of God. And we're going to see him display it. We're going to see the character of God on display through Paul today. Um, let me ask a question. Have you ever been in a fragile relationship? A strained relationship? Let's say with someone or someones that you love. They might be good friends. They might be relatives. You might have a long history with them. 
but something is broken, something is hurt, it's not reconciled, it's not right yet. You wake up in the middle of the night and you're still feeling the pain. You wrestle with it. There's still tears. Things are not resolved yet. How do you handle that relationship? We're gonna see Paul step into a situation like that and watch how he handles it. And I think it's remarkable. I think there's gonna be some practical helps for us in that. Um, we, um, we're in this severe world situation with Russia having invaded Ukraine. And like many or all of you, I have been following that the best I can without trying to be completely overwhelmed by it. But I found myself yesterday, as I'm intersecting it throughout the day at different points, finding myself moving between three different categories. One was deep grief, deep grief for loss of life, for a man's brutal inhumanitarianism, um, just for wickedness running uh, without controls, without limits, and for what? False motivations. And, and that leads to anger, anger at sin, anger at abusive leadership, anger at incompetent leadership elsewhere, and just anger that Satan is so deceptive as the father of lies. He lies to people, he deceives people, he makes people believe things that are so opposite of truth and so opposed to the character of God. He works destruction in our world. It makes me angry with hopefully a righteous anger. And then there's a third sentiment and that's anticipation of meeting with you all today because meeting is a reminder. It's a symbolic uh, reminder that in Christ we actually have hope for a different way, for a different story, for a different outcome. That the power of God actually can change lives, can change hearts, can change people from being brutal dictators or unwise politicians to being people who would actually humble themselves before God and point toward the Lord. And I was reminded that when we gather, we don't have to gather as those who are affirming the lies and those who are pursuing brutality to one another. We can gather here as ministers of hope, be reminded of the character of God and be encouragers of one another in our walk in a place where God's light can shine. So that's the more encouraging part of my day yesterday. Um, but it raises a question for me, is it appropriate for spiritual leaders to be overwhelmed by grief, to be angry? Do we have permission as pastors and spiritual leaders to express those kind of emotions or are we always to be happy no matter what the circumstance? Or are we always to be stoic? Everything is always managed and under control. Or has God given us a, a heart to respond appropriately that mirrors the heart of God? And then we're gonna see some answers to that question through the Apostle Paul. In one of the beauties of the book of 2 Corinthians is more than perhaps any other book. We see the heart of the apostle here. We may have ideas of, of what Paul is like, but we see him as a person. 
We see him interacting with other people. We see his loves and his hurts in this, uh, in this book. We're going to intersect this story where Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's feeling the need to defend himself about why he's writing verses coming in person like he had promised. He's referencing a painful visit and a prior severe letter and he's going to reveal his anguished heart to them. And along the way, we're going to address four practical insights of spiritual leadership, four leadership principles that we see in Paul um, that I think have practical application for us. One is, how do we respond to a strained relationship? And uh, awesome, we got that. So yeah, so responding to a strained relationship. A second is, what is the posture of church leaders toward their people? When you look at Robert, you look at me, you look at, at elders here, what is to be our posture toward you? Paul's gonna show us that. What is the goal of church discipline? When someone sins so profoundly that the congregation is affected and the reputation of Christ is at stake and church discipline needs to be pursued, what's the goal of that? What's the end result of that? What is God trying and hoping to accomplish in that? And the last is the reality of relentless spiritual opposition. Spiritual opposition will not go away this side of eternity. It'll be with us. And in all of these four things, we're going to see that, see that leadership by Paul displays the character of God. In all of these scenarios, the character of God is gonna be revealed through Paul. So I'd like to read this passage with you. If you've got your Bibles, take, out, uh, take them out and turn to 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter one, or um, I think we're gonna project on the screen as well. Starting in verse 23, it's an odd chapter break, but the paragraph begins at verse 23. I'm gonna read it here. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but that we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I, when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant joy that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So that's the territory that we're in. I want to go back to that first verse, uh, verse 23 of chapter 1, as we look at Paul responding to a strained relationship. Notice here he says, 
with God as my witness or God witnessing against me, he has already given a couple reasons for why he didn't make the trip to see them in person. And he's anticipating that they could be questioning his integrity. Is he a liar? Or last week, does he vacillate? Is his yes, sometimes yes, sometimes no? Robert discussed that last week. He's already given two answers. One was, folks, I nearly died. There was a physical challenge that involved us nearly like dying that got in the way of me coming. It was a pretty good, pretty good rationale there. And then he speaks of God's sovereignty and God not leading him to come. Sometimes we think we're interpreting, even apostles sometimes think they're interpreting what God's plans are and God steers in a different direction. But now he's, he's admitting his resoluteness. He has come to discover himself. He's not to come, and here's why, and he's very personal about it. I call God as, witness, uh, God as my witness. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming, against, uh, coming again to Corinth. To spare them. To spare them what? Well, Paul knows how to throw down the hammer. When that's necessary, when that's appropriate, Paul can do that. He's got that skill. He's got that right. He's got that ability. And he has done that already. But he's recognizing they don't need the hammer again. This is like a parent with a child. What does a child need for discipline? Sometimes they need a spanking. Sometimes they need to go to the room. Sometimes they need a privilege taken away. Sometimes they need a hug. Sometimes they need an unexpected grace. And Paul, like a parent to this congregation, he's saying, I don't want to pour out my wrath on you again. We've done that. Let's move to the next chapter that's a much more beautiful thing. Um, jump ahead to verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Um, let's just move this into our lives for a moment. Imagine, <clears throat> imagine you've got a broken relationship with someone. You start thinking about it, and your heart starts pulsating faster, right? I mean, this is unresolved. And you have experience that they say something, and it triggers you. You say something, it triggers them. And what you've seen happen before is pretty soon you're back and forth. You're both in your lizard brain, my wife tells me it's called, and one of you is going to say something that you know you're going to have to apologize for later. And in an effort to make things better, you've actually made things worse. You ever been there? So maybe it's better to write a letter. Maybe it's better not to communicate, not to, not to take that risk of another potentially painful visit that may go awry, may not be redemptive in the way that we hope. So I see Paul doing a couple of very practical things here. One is he's got the wisdom to know what his hearers need, what's going to serve them. That's, that's his greatest concern not to fix them, not to win a debate, not to prove that he was right, not to remind them of their error. It's interesting that all of those details are not mentioned by Paul. He's silent on those. He is not making a record of wrongs and reminding them of how they wronged him or what they did evil against him. He, what he's writing 
When, when, we, when we take time to write in a contentious relationship, think of the advantages, just the practical advantages. We have the opportunity to review it, to see, did I say what I meant to say? And did I not say what I really don't want to say, those damaging things? How's the tone? Could I have someone else read it and double-check the tone of it? Um, but what does Paul want them to know more than anything? Look at verse 4. This is awesome. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. He's acknowledging this was deeply hurtful for him. Much affliction, anguish. He has cried over them. But not to cause you pain. Here's what he wants them to know. But to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That's his heart. It's like if you hear nothing else, if you read nothing else, read this, hear this. I love you deeply. I love you abundantly. Can you imagine being on the other side of that letter? You know there's a tense relationship with someone, right? You've been hurt, you've been wronged, it's unresolved. You don't trust yourself in, in, a, in a room with just this other person. But they write you a letter and they don't call to mind the things that you did wrong. They don't try to win an argument. Their number one priority of writing is to display their love for you is to let you know how concerned they are and interested in the relationship with you? Does that change your heart? Change your disposition toward them? This is the heart of Paul, displaying the heart of Christ, the heart of God. It's not until we get to verse nine that he actually gives a reason for why he wrote. In fact, it starts out, this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient to everything. And when we read that, we can wonder, well, so is this authoritarian Paul after all who just wants them to be obedient to him? What I says goes, folks. He's in the position of power, position of authority, and he's calling them out, your job, my job, tell you what to do, your job, obey me. Well, that's what despots do. That's what authoritarian leaders do. Is that really what Paul is doing here? If that is what Paul is doing here, that's gonna be going oppositely against the grain of everything else he's doing in this entire passage. Maybe there's another option. What would be consistent with a passage is that Paul is pointing them to Christ, that he has already established that he is one who is himself obeying God obeying the gospel, obeying the calling of God and the imitation of Christ upon his life. And he has been one who has been pointing to Christ and saying, obey him, obey God. He's calling them to obedience, yes, but not to obey him, to obey God in a way that he has already been consistently demonstrating as a spiritual leader of integrity. He's already been showing them what that looks like. And now he's calling them to display what he is already displaying and displaying through an attitude of love um, and desiring to restore their relationship. The posture of church leaders, that's the territory that we're in here. What is the posture? Um, go back to verse 24. <clears throat> These four areas, by the way, 
they're interwoven throughout this passage, and uh, that's why it takes a little extra work to get them. Verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. There's some remarkable things here <clears throat> that he's saying about leadership and our approach to people in a congregation. Unlike the Gentiles, unlike the Romans, we could say, unlike, um, unlike national leaders that we are so aware of that come to our minds, he does not lord over his people. It's not like he's from on high speaking down to them. This is what's so remarkable. Paul is saying, I'm with you. It's like he's coming down to actually be among them, to minister alongside them, to get eye to eye, face to face, arm to arm with them, doing the physical work with them, doing the hard relational work with them, involving meals, involving celebrations, involving the things of human life, involving expressions of joy that we're going to see in a moment. Um, but his goal here is not that they take his faith. It's not, it's not this indoctrination, this what we used to call this, this pouring out of everything I believe I'm going to pour into you so that you believe it, so that you look like me, so you're a disciple of me. That's precisely what he's not advocating. Notice he's saying, we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Paul is saying, as my eyes are on the Lord Jesus Christ, as I am trying to grow in and reflect the character of God, that's what I'm calling you to. So that you look to Jesus, you look to the character of God, and you become like him so that you can stand firm on your own two feet of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as God guides you this has so much to say about how we pursue discipling, how we pursue teaching, how we pursue influencing others. It's not, I'm going to share with you everything I know, all the goods that I got so that you're going to be like me and, and I'll have my little posse that follows me. No, no, no. No, no, no. Me and all my weakness, all my perfect, imperfections, all my failures, I'm going to point you to Jesus and the Spirit of God will transform your life and your heart and make you look like him. And as he brings conviction to your life, you will grow the strength of your faith as you walk with the Spirit, as you have your eyes on Christ, as you seek to display the very heart of God. You will stand on your feet. And he says this process will be joyful. This will restore the joy. When Paul is interacting with people, He's pointing them to Christ. They're ministering to one another. It's a climate of joy. That's how we know there's healthy leadership dynamics. If you're ever at a church and you're wondering, where's the joy around here? And everyone feels stifled. They feel like things can't be said because what if leaders heard? What if things got out? That's an unhealthy place. A place of healthy spiritual leadership is a place marked by joy and people who are standing firm in their faith. Look at the next uh, 
couple verses in chapter two, verses two and three. We're gonna see the relational heart here of Paul and this desired interplay with people. He says, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad uh, by the one whom I have pained? And as, when I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who would have made me rejoice for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. We get a little lost there in some of the verbiage, but what's going on is Paul is saying, a healthy climate of ministry is one that we're made glad. Have you ever thought of the Apostle Paul as being someone who is glad, marked by his, his happiness, his joyful countenance? And let's not rob that and say, well, you know, that's joy and adversity. This is joy and joy. This is gladness in God's blessings of ministry among the body. We don't need to defang that, right? Um, he's recognizing if I have to keep focusing on what, what is wrong, I'm gonna rob you of your joy, and then who's gonna make me glad? He sees this interplay, this interrelational dynamic that leaders should have with their people. Let's go serve God together. It's gonna be great. Let's minister to one another and we're going to experience the joy and the pleasure of God in our midst. That's what he's called us to. Um, it's not there right now in this community, but he wants to restore it. The fact that it's not there right now means it needs to be addressed and the rest of this is gonna address it. Um, So we've seen that uh, Paul's leadership has demonstrated God's heart in a strained relationship and in his posture toward them. Uh, this is focusing on emphasizing his love, his desire to be in joyful ministry interaction with his people. An, an image that I have here is of a dad getting on the ground and playing with his toddler at their level with their toys right, or wrestling with the young elementary school kids, the boys and the girls, or maybe kicking the ball outside or climbing the trees and being on the same branches that they're on, having a picnic with their favorite food. This is the joy of a parent loving and expressing joy with their children. That's the picture I think that Paul has for him with his people. I want to read something by uh, Joe Belts, who's quoted by George Guthrie in his commentary. He says, this sentence still jumps out at me from the middle of an editorial by the Wall Street Journal. He says, it's been half a decade since I read it, but it was one of those electric expressions that you can't forget. People want to be lightly governed, the writer said, by strong governments. That's what you've always wanted since you were a small child. You wanted your dad to be big and strong and able to do anything you could think of except that when he dealt with you, it had to be with gentleness and tenderness. You wanted a policeman on the corner tough enough to handle any neighborhood bully but who would also hoist you onto your shoulders and help you find your parents when you got lost in the crowd. Lots of muscle, lots of restraint. That's an innate yearning in almost all of us for that rare combination. When evil people rise up, we want a government with a clout to back them down. 
yet we never want that clout to turn on us. In the final analysis, people want to be lightly governed by strong governments because that's how God governs. The omnipotent ruler of the universe is also the one who invites us tenderly. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. See, when we think about ministering to others, we want to rethink about ministering among others. Not be tellers, but being displayers, being showers. Not describing the demands of God so much as displaying the character of God toward people. Um, We're pointing to Jesus so they build their faith. Their allegiance isn't to us, but to them. So, What's this whole ordeal about? Who's the offender? What's the offense? What has gone wrong? What's he trying to fix? What's the big old deal in the background here? Well, we don't know. (laughs) But we get some insight, and that starts in in verse 5. So looking at verse 5, he says, Now to anyone who has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you, For such a one, this punishment of the majority is enough so that you would rather turn to forgive, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or that he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, That has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So we've got a scenario that's going on here that's describing church discipline that has occurred. Someone has sinned grievously. The entire body has been affected. The view of God has been marred. Church discipline has has taken place to the result of someone being removed from the body. And yet Paul's saying that is not the end. That was never the destination. That was never the goal. I've got better plans for spiritual discipline. The goal is always restoration. The goal is always love, forgiveness, reconciliation, being placed back into the body and receiving from the body the fullness of joy within the body, not with holdouts, but with full embrace, with full love, full restitution. That's the goal, and that's what he's talking about here. Now, we wonder, you know, we're still still curious. Who is it? And Paul is profoundly unhelpful here. He's like, if anyone... You know, it's like a euphemism for, you know who I'm talking about, right? If, you know, it's like in our family, um, you know, somebody ate the last piece of cake, right? Who could that be, dad? You know, who could that be, right? And everyone knows, but we don't know. We don't know the circumstances. Like anyone, 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 Bueller, anyone, you know, it's anyone. So there's two schools of thought on who this is and what the circumstance is. 
like so many things, there's like a traditional view and a modern view. And in this case, I lean toward the traditional view. And the traditional view is basically laid out quickly like this. Everyone agrees there's probably four letters. There's a letter before 1 Corinthians, which makes 1 Corinthians actually like the second letter to the Corinthians. And then this passage refers to this other severe letter, this harsh letter, which is like the third letter. And so 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. So we have to make sense of that. But in, in the canonical books that God has given, for reasons we don't know, Two of these letters are undiscovered, and God has given us two of these letters. And there's a person that's identified in the first letter, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, someone who sinned so egregiously that was an embarrassment to the congregation and about destroyed the reputation of the church among the pagans. Paul, when he's calling this out, he's saying, this sexual sin is of a severity and intensity that not even the pagans participate in this. If you could imagine, it would be like people in Vegas are like, have you heard what's going on in Whittier? We don't even do that here. Be like people in West Hollywood, they do what? People in West Hollywood are embarrassed by the sin happening in the church. And Paul says, expel the wicked cancer from among you. He says, I cannot believe that you tolerated this evil here. So much damage was done to the name of Christ and the reputation. How could you be so callous as to allow this here? So we know that at least that letter, he dropped the hammer. And he spoke harshly and told them exactly what they needed to do. Could that be this person? I think it's likely. There's another view, a modern view, that thinks, nah, nah that was actually too severe. And Paul's actually too gracious here, too generous here, couldn't be the same situation. That was an expulsion. Um, that was um, give his life over to Satan, and this is warning about Satan's devices. We got too many different details. And so it must be something related to that third letter, and then there's conjecture. People imagine, because we, we have nothing to go on. So perhaps it was somebody who was divisive, someone who opposed Paul, and this caused a, a split, a rift in the church, and Paul's coming back and addressing that. Bottom line, we don't know. We don't know. But one reason I prefer the first view is because it highlights what we are prone to reject, and that is how extreme God's forgiveness actually is. It highlights the unlimited nature of God's grace and his unlimited ability and desire to pursue believers who have lost their way. Ways that are beyond what we would expect. Ways that surprise us. Ways that remind us that the story of an individual is never fully over. Specifically, Paul says, expel him from the church. Turn his flesh over to Satan that his body may die, but that his soul would be saved at the day of the coming of Christ. That tells me that is a believer. Some of us are prone to think, nah, nah, no Christian could sin that bad. But this seems to be describing a sinner who sinned that bad that one way or another, 
he's gonna be removed from, the, the, the body has to be protected from the sin that he's causing, the damage that he's done. Paul's first concern is the body, not the individual who's causing the damage. He's protecting the church, the reputation of Christ. But for that individual, he's holding out hope that he will still be rescued, even removed from the lifeblood of the Spirit of God in the gathered community. He'll be out to the wolves, out among the pagans. He may not return physically. We may not see him before death, but he expects to see him at the resurrection, that God would save his soul. And it's left open the implied possibility that he might yet return and we might yet see him this side of restoration, this side of resurrection. And if he comes back, how are we gonna treat him? I think that might be the context that Paul's dealing with here in 2 Corinthians, 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 2. Um, C.S. Lewis has a quote from Mere Christianity that tells us how to hate properly. I came to church, the pastor told me how to hate, all right? Um, how to hate evil and how to hate evildoers. He writes, Christianity does not want us to reduce one atom, the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. I feel so much better about how I was feeling yesterday. Oh, man. Not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid, but it does want us to hate them, catch this, in the same way that we hate things about ourselves. Being sorry that a man should have done these things and hoping if it is any way possible that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and be made human again. This is recognizing that people who do heinous sin have probably been damaged, have probably been themselves hurt and wounded. They've somehow lost their humanity. And our heart disposition toward them is not just destroy them, get rid of them. They're an imposition, they're an embarrassment. Not to be condescending toward them, but to find compassion for them and hope and pray that their humanity in Christ might somehow be restored. Isn't that a great way to hate? <laughs> Ends up being a way to love, doesn't it? A way to love very deeply. And this brings us back to verses six to eight. And look at these, the power of these words. For such a one, for such a heinous sinner, this punishment by the majority is enough. It's gone on long enough we're ready to round third base and run home to complete spiritual discipline here. Verse seven, so that you should, what's the congregation's role now? Turn to forgive and comfort him so that he may be overwhelmed, so, sorry, or he will be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote. He wants the church to re-embrace the evil that they kicked out, the repentant evil that they have kicked out, to restore the person back. Understand there's a process here, of a, a process of, of calling out, 
a process of confrontation of sin. Confrontation is not skipped. There's an actual confrontation of the sin, but with a hope that that moves to confession and repentance, and then with the expectation that that then moves to reconciliation and full restoration, full re-embrace by the body. That is always the goal of spiritual discipline. Turn back to him, forgive him, comfort him. Paul begs them, reaffirm your love for him. And then he says in verse 10, look at this, verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what has been forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Let me say that again. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Paul here, I've said, is displaying the character of God. What is central to the character of God? It is his forgiving nature. Paul is displaying that over and over and over, the forgiveness of God, the disposition to forgive the errant sinner. What if he sins really bad, really severely, really horrific sin? Well, perhaps more forgiveness will be necessary. Perhaps there will be an opportunity for more forgiveness to be displayed. See, the, the goal of church discipline is for the person to repent and then be forgiven, and the body to re-engage them. Um, when, when we become believers, the root thing, the chief thing, the bottom line thing that's happening is we are receiving forgiveness from God. Think about it. Think about your story. At some point, God convicted you of sin. He convicted you of a gap between your sinfulness and his perfect righteousness. There's this chasm, and you heard the good news that Jesus was sent to bridge that chasm to restore you, to reconcile you to God through Jesus, through his righteousness. And you made this greatest transaction of your life to give Jesus your sin and to be given the righteousness of Christ and with Jesus as your mediator to be then seen as holy and righteous and godly in the sight of God. What an amazing thing, but it centers on forgiveness. And Paul recognizes that what is most central to God and most beautiful to the believer is the most likely thing to be attacked by the enemy. And look at where verse 10 leads into. Verse 10, this is all about forgiveness. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. It's like, whoa, where did that come from? Well, get this. Anything you were pursuing, Satan will oppose. If you are trying to righteously love your spouse, Satan's going to oppose that. If you are trying to raise godly children, Satan will oppose that. If you are trying to live a life of spiritual integrity at your secular workplace, Satan will oppose that. If you're trying to present the gospel to your neighbor, Satan will oppose that. 
if you are experiencing or focused on the most precious, the most central attribute and characteristic of God that we come into contact to in our humanity, which is the forgiveness of Christ, Satan will oppose that. Do not be surprised by his schemes. Do not be outmaneuvered by this, this chess player of an enemy. We are not unaware of his schemes, um, is what he says there. So we want to see that God just continues to extend his forgiveness. See, we're, we're prone to believe one of two lies. Well, well, lies about ourselves or lies about other people. We can think, I've blown it. That was my last shot. God's never, now it's too much. I, I've gone too far, I've sinned too deeply. I've, I've, I've missed my opportunity. And that's a lie about God's forgiveness. Or we can do it in a condescending way toward others. We can say, oh man, <laughs> write them off, they are too far gone. We can forget that that could be us. We might have been the prodigal. We're circumstances different than that. And we can look down at other people and say their sin is too severe. Throw them out of the camp without a heart to restore them. Just maintaining a condescending heart. To this, I want to read some words by by Dane Ortland. Um, Joel introduced us to this book a few months ago, Gentle and Lowly, and Robert handed out some uh, I think a couple hundred copies. Maybe a lot of you have this on like a bookshelf or a bedside stand somewhere. This is worth actually reading. I finished reading it this week. I think this book is changing my life. I hope it is. Um, but he's, he's developing a theme of Romans 5 here, and I'm going to read it off my screen. But, but he's talking about God's love for us after initial forgiveness, meaning not just God's forgiveness for us while we were yet sinners, But after we've come to Christ, God, who had a disposition to love us while we were still sinning, do you realize that after we came to Christ, when we sin again, his disposition has not changed? That his disposition is still to love us? Have we processed that? So Orland writes, in Christ's death, God is confronting our dark thoughts of him and our chronic insistence that divine love must have an end point, a limit, a point at which it finally runs dry. Christ died to confound our intuitive assumptions that divine love has an expiration date. He died to prove that God's love is, as Jonathan Edwards puts it, an ocean without shores or bottoms. God's love is as boundless as God himself. This is why the Apostle Paul speaks of divine love as a reality that stretches to an immeasurable breadth and length and height and depth, Ephesians 3.18. The only thing in the universe as immeasurable as that is God himself. God's love is as expansive as God himself. So we... We've got to see that God's purpose and desire is to restore sinners who've gone astray and never let us be the ones who put a limit on God's grace or God's forgiveness. There's a song that we sing, um, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. However deep our sin goes, God's grace is yet deeper. However the expanse is of our rebellion against God, as believers, God's grace can extend farther. 
Do you realize that? It is immeasurable. That's the love that God has for you. And that's the love that Paul is displaying for his church. And that's the character of God that we want to have here in our church uh, to see God's purposes there. Um, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. You know, behind the scenes in Ukraine, this isn't just about rights to oil. This isn't just about mineral rights in eastern Ukraine. This isn't just about NATO being on their doorstep and a defensive plot to keep NATO bombs away from them. Aside from all of those partial earthly truths, are spiritual realities that undergird these things. There are principalities that are at war against God, war against the expressions of God's grace. Is it any surprise that Ukraine has been, for centuries, the best expression of Christianity in the entire region that we used to know of as the USSR and all of its dozens of satellite states? Uh, in a region like triple the size of the United States, Ukraine has been the breadbasket of spirituality, of Christianity. There are Bible schools there. There are mission endeavors there. There are seminaries there. There are pastoral trainings there. My dad has gone to Donetsk more than once to, to teach and to train up spiritual leaders. Biola has connections there. They have, they have spiritual, um, they've got pastoral classes that they're teaching that they providentially moved online about a month ago. Um, they're a sending place. God is going to be sending the gospel with re these refu refugees because God does his redemptive work in light of whatever tragedies are going on. But this is bigger than, than Putin invading Ukraine. There's principalities trying to take down the gospel here. And we do not want to be unaware of Satan's schemes and of his designs. Um, but this, uh, this final thing is to look behind the curtain and through what Paul has been displaying over and over through this passage, we see the character of God. We have insight into his pastoral heart and he reveals the heart of God and it's been marked by deep love, aggrieved love, affliction, anguish, many tears over gross sin, the loss of public reputation and impact. But these serve as backdrop to reveal the depth of his abundant love toward the people. His tears display his care. His anguish desires to be transformed into joy and restored delight among the body. His heart is to be eager to forgive, to restore joy, to overwhelm with love, to pursue a ministry of merciful restoration and full forgiveness. And folks, this completely displays the heart of God for you. The heart of God for you. Um, one more brief quote from uh, Dane Ortland from his book, Gentle and Lowly. This is highlighting a verse from Ephesians chapter two. How many times have I read Ephesians chapter two? Dozens, hundreds, and yet this verse has never captured me before yesterday. Um, so he's borrowing insight from Jonathan Edwards, highlighting preaching on Ephesians chapter two. Here's the question in the background. What is God's purpose or intention for eternity? And we quickly say things like to glorify God um, or 
for us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Those are great constructs, great phrasings, but we wonder what's in it for God? Why would he want us there? Why are we necessary to his eternity? Have you ever wondered that? Here's an incredible answer, all right? Ephesians 2, 7, that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Portland writes, the point of his unending, everlasting life of believers with God as the new heavens and earth come down and join with the new earth, that we will be with God and his people, it's so that God will have enough time to reveal the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. It's like, what? What? Time is not enough for God to reveal his immeasurable riches of kindness toward his children. Eternity is required for the full expression of God's immeasurable kindness and mercy toward his people. That is the character of God. That is his love for you. Um, Paul wants us to see God in this way. We've had a question on staff raised and among overseers raised and Robert raised it recently in a staff meeting, and the question was, what are we discipling people to or toward? Like, what's the goal of discipleship? And together, we can universally say, it's to become more like Jesus Christ. We might say, it's to be shaped by the character of Christ. Doctrine speaks into that, but at the end of the day, it's, are we more and more formed into the image of Jesus Christ? That's the goal of discipleship. That's what we want to be displaying, growing in and then displaying to others. Would you pray with me? And uh, Nate will lead us in worship and ushers will come. We'll finish out our time. Uh, dear Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it takes effort. Sometimes preachers talk too long. Um, God, we thank you for your heart-rending character, the display of your deep, immeasurable love for us. Help us to embrace it. Help us to be known for it. In Jesus' name, amen.